tell us about your podcast and what you do. It was a cold October morning. And I have to give you a little history because I've had a lot of podcasts, to be honest. I also listen to stereo. I started at late though, so I got to binge like the first eight episodes and then I had to wait for the last two and that was a little bit torturous. Then I saw Making a Murderer. And at the time I was working as a therapist, like mental health for children with mental health disorders and behavior disorders. And I thought, wow, Brendan Daffy could be one of those kids sitting in my office. It broke my heart. And I was like, I'm a social worker. So it's my job to, I'm an educated person. And I didn't know things like this happened, especially wrongful convictions. And so I was like, how can I broadcast this to the world? I can make a podcast. I didn't know how to make a podcast. I had never had any experience with audio or anything. I had an outdated laptop and no recording equipment. So I borrowed a microphone from my friend. I made a podcast about making a murder. It was very brief. It had 10 episodes. It was one for each episode. And in the last episode, we interviewed Julie Bomber, who is an exoneree from Michigan. And it was the most powerful thing I had ever done was talking to this person. And my friends who I was doing the podcast with was like, I don't have time for this anymore. And I was like, you know what? I could do a podcast just by interviewing exoneries. People are going to love this. I did several episodes, I think five. And then I got this email from this guy who was like, yeah, I'm the executive producer from Undisclosed and we love you, blah, 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 blah. I hung out with Undisclosed for a while. My claim to fame is I slept on the cast for Masters in Robbie's basement. While I was doing that podcast called Actual Innocence, I did a couple of episodes where I would interview post-conviction attorneys just to have them explain stuff to me like that I didn't understand about the law. Mm. My whole podcasting career was based on stuff I didn't know. Like, I don't know this, so who else doesn't know it? And I was talking to this woman. Her name is Rachel Kamen, and she is a post-conviction attorney in Maryland. And after I did the interview with her, she emailed me. She's like, have you ever heard of this case? And I was like, no, I am a social worker in Indiana. I have not heard of that case in Maryland. And the man's name is Richard Nicholas. And his attorney was Christina Gutierrez. And then two other who are supposed to be really good attorneys in Maryland. And the mm-hmm. prosecutor was your friend Sharon May. Like the name like in this podcast were very well known. So I read it and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Like, I don't know if he's innocent or guilty. But I absolutely know he did not get a fair trial. And so that's what that podcast was about. Okay. Gutierrez was the defense attorney and Sharon May was prosecuting? Yes. Okay. There were three defense attorneys, but Christina Gutierrez was the lead. Why does Christina Um, sound familiar? She was not an attorney. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She actually passed She passed away. Yes. It was the year before she defended Adnan, though. And to be honest, I have gone through every, I have read the transcript word by word. And I think she did a fantastic job. Like, I don't think, I don't, I can't fault her for anything in this case. I think people are waiting for me to bash Christina, but I can't because she didn't do anything wrong in this case. I know that she had a degenerative illness, so it's very possible the next year when she was defending Adnan that that she did. Her illness did get in the way, and I still, in the case of Richard Nicholas, I don't fault her for anything. The prosecution, on the other hand, oh my gosh, there were such severe Brady violations, and also, there were two letters written from the prosecuting attorneys 
Sharon May Roberta Systems, and they wrote a letter to the medical examiner thanking him for giving misleading testimony, like thanking him. And they also wrote a letter to the first officer on the scene who, in the case of Richard Nicholas, his two-year-old daughter was shot in the face. So this officer had been working for a week. He'd been a police officer for a week, and he's the first officer on the scene of this horrific thing. He removed the body from the car, and so that is not procedure. And so they wrote him a letter saying, normally procedure is a good thing, but since you broke procedure, that's how we were able to win this case. Can you tell us a little bit about Nichols and the case, what it was about? Yeah, so Richard Nicholas had a daughter by a one-night stand. And he was not very active in this daughter's life. He was very flighty. He was very just, he was in his early 30s, but he still had the teenage mentality. So he wasn't very active in her life in the beginning. Like around her second birthday, a little bit before that, he started making an effort to be more active. So he started doing things with the little girl and her mom. One night, he and the mom and the little girl were supposed to go to the movies together. And so he picks her up and he takes her to the movie. He thinks the movie starts at seven, but it's Friday night. So the movie had changed, but he didn't know because this was before the internet. The movie that they were going to see was Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's supposed to start at seven. They ended up buying a ticket for an eight o'clock showing of Pinocchio because that was the kid's movie that was playing. And that's when it started. They had an hour to burn at this mall. So there's a picture of dad and daughter in a photo booth at the mall that was taken sometime between seven and eight. There was two possibilities. It was like 703 or 747, something like that. So there's evidence that they were at the mall, like, together. So the dad's story is that they went in and watched the movie. And then on the way home, he got followed by this drunken road rage driver. And so he pulled on a side road to hopefully hoping that the road rage driver would stay on the main road. While on the side road, the road rage driver passed. He, like, he had parked the car, the road rage driver passed his car and shot into the car and shot his daughter. That's his story. The prosecution claims that he put his daughter in the car, shot her, and then went in and watched Pinocchio by himself and then left and then made up the story. There is absolutely no evidence that the prosecution theory is possible. There was a lot of just like general shadiness, like a Brady violation. And They never really investigated anyone else. (laughs) So there were these two witnesses that heard a shot around the time that the dad said, Richard Nicholas said that his daughter was shot in that same area where he was pulled over. And those were never disclosed to the defense. And that's a big deal. Yeah, that was a Brady violation. And his conviction got overturned, but then it got reinstated. And it was just this big, like, it's been... It had been going on for like 20 years. So he had been in and out of court and he kept getting counsel appointed, which you're not entitled to at the stage he's in. So he was compelling someone with like his story and his uh, forensic evidence. They did a terrible job of collecting it, but forensic guy said that they found gunshot residue on his left hand. Well, he was right-handed and it was 10 particles. If you fire a gun, it is very likely 
that there would be a lot of particles of gunshot residue everywhere, especially on your dominant hand. And also, that was back in the time when in Baltimore, they discovered that everything in the police station has gunshot residue on it because there's a firing range there. Someone else, just a couple years before him, got their conviction overturned because there was gunshot residue everywhere. And it was the same guy who tested that guy that tested Richard Nicholas and misrepresented it. He misrepresented it both times. And then come to find out what they had tested for was two of the three particles in gunshot residue. So they couldn't even conclusively say that it was gunshot residue, even though they represented it that way. And he worked at a copy machine repair company. And those two particles are all over copy machines, too. So it could have very well been something else. A Brady violation, and correct me if I'm wrong, is when the prosecution doesn't provide information to the defense. Is that correct? Prosecution doesn't provide information to the defense that could affect the outcome of the trial. Sure. So, so when you do your post-conviction, you have to prove that it was a Brady violation by, and this is a very big burden, by somehow proving that it, you can't see my air quotes, but I'm making them, <laughs> proving that it would have altered the decision of the jury. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But you can't know. You can't know that. So you can't ever get a fair trial if there was a Brady violation because the jury's gone. Like it, it's been 20 years. And so the Brady violation was based on the fact that they withheld the evidence that there were two witnesses that heard the gunshot at the time that he said the gun was shot. Which is very important information. And then there was ineffective assistance of counsel because a medical examiner, they talked about lividity and he, he was asked a question in a way that it made it sound like he was saying that after two hours, lividity would have been fixed in the body. And that's why they were saying that she had been in the car in the mall parking lot that time. And that's how lividity fixed. But lividity doesn't fix for like 10 to 13 hours. So it was misrepresented what he was saying. But the, the defense didn't have an expert and they didn't ask Object the right it. questions. Right. Yeah. So there were like when they did the cross examination, they didn't ask how long does it take for lividity to fix? Could it have been fixed after two hours in this mm -hmm. case? And there was several, several ineffective counsel things, but I think everybody does that. So Sharon wrote a letter to the medical examiner, and you said thanking him for misleading testimony. Yes. Yeah. Basically, it was like thank you. Your testimony was so fantastic. Now you have to do that good at all of our trials. And he said something about we, if it weren't for professional etiquette, we would have been kicking each other under the table in delight. I don't like it was so unprofessional. And How did then, you get um, access to that letter? Because I was working with Richard's attorney that had access to everything. I had 15 boxes of evidence. Oh, wow. So they had the communication between her and the medical examiner within the evidence? Yeah. Yeah, because when they started to claim that there was a Brady violation, the judge ordered an in-camera review, and that's when the letters were found, like 15 years later. Oh, okay. What was the year for the trial, Brooke? 97. And where is Richard Nichols now? He is in prison with Adnan. They know each other. In the, um, is it Western Maryland? Cumberland. Yeah, Correctional Institution. So we have another man who probably shouldn't be there. Yeah. You said something about a letter or something to a police officer? Yeah. 
So the first officer on the scene, Officer Hannah, he was brand new and he freaked out because he saw a dead little girl and he, they had her, he had her removed from the car. You can't investigate if you move the body from the car. So who should have left her there? Like the emergency personnel were almost there. Like it was obvious she was not alive. Right. So the letter to him said, this is your first appearance in court. And normally we think procedure is a good thing, but in this case, you did the right thing because it helped us to win. And they were like praising him for having her removed from the car because that helped their helped them mislead the examiner into saying stuff about lividity. Wow. Mm-hmm. I believe Sharon's husband was a police officer. I emailed Sharon May and she emailed me back <laughs> and it was not a pleasant communication. Recently? Um, it's been like a year. I said, hey, I'm a podcaster. I don't know if he did it or not, but I want to hear what you have to say. I was definitely, I am the most non-judgmental person ever, according to some of the people I've interviewed. She emailed me back and she said, yes, she remembered Richard Nicholas's case. And then she said, and like I said in my closing argument, I hope that little girl was asleep before her father pulled the trigger. I can still picture the gun, I don't know the word, I think it's the brain burns around her face. Like, it was very gruesome. And then she ended it with. The detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And if the goal of your podcast is to get Richard Nicholas another trial, count me out because someone did a podcast on Adnan and now he's getting another trial. And I was like, wow, that was intense. And I emailed her back and I was like, my intention is not, my intention is to find out the choice. And, but she never answered. Which I guess what she's saying is because of all the attention on the trial, everybody is rallying around him saying he he didn't do it. I watched her on The Keepers just because I had never met her. I had only read what she had written in a transcript. I didn't have audio of the trial. I imagine she was fantastic in front of a jury. She appears in the part I saw of her on The Keeper. I haven't watched the whole thing. I've only seen up to that part and then I couldn't go any further. She is charismatic. She's well-spoken and she's not, she doesn't talk above anybody's level. So if people on the jury weren't like super well-educated, she brought it down to their level. It was just conversational. 
But I absolutely believe she was being misleading at the very least in her statement on the keepers because, so I'm a therapist, right? By trade, <laughs> like I analyze people's behavior. She was talking about how they, she was in her red sports car with the top down and the sun and the wind and all this. And she had all these fantastic memories of this day. But when they asked her, because she was going to look for pictures, right? Is that right? I haven't seen it in a while. She, Say, she was going, she thought yeah, that she was going to Ho- Holy Cross Cemetery. Where right, they, because they um, thought that something was buried was, there. Yeah. She was aware of what was in the hole well, that she didn't remember. And this is why I believe that, because she has these vivid memories of that day, but cannot recall if she accomplished what she went there to accomplish doesn't make sense. If you don't have recall of a past event, it's unlikely that you're going to remember the drive there, but not if you got what you were after. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. She was very indirect with her answer when he asked her that, but she sure right, remember yeah. driving there in her convertible. Yeah, we also have two people who have told us information that is proof that she knew what was in the what was in the hole. And one came from a young man who was being evaluated, who had been at the Catholic Community Middle School where John Mersbacher was abusing children. He reported that Mersbacher was having sex with the principal, who was a nun. I know. Does it get any weirder? And so they brought Joseph Maskell in the next day to evaluate this kid. And in the seventh grade, he he convinced the kid's parents he belonged at Shepherd Pratt. And Sharon talked to someone that I know about the case and said she thought it was unusual that this young man's evaluation was in that hole. The evaluation was not the size of a telephone book. It was a folder. So for her to have known that with the hole the size of a room, she knew what else was in there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that she said, I don't recall, which is what you say when you don't want to lie, but you also don't want to tell. Right. What also surprised me during that interview was Sharon acted like she didn't have any irons in the fire to when it came to prosecuting someone such as Father Maskell or through the Catholic Church. She said she mentioned that she wasn't Catholic. However, from what I believe is accurate information, her husband was a police officer. And we know Maskell had friends, for lack of better words, pals within the police department. So for her to act like in that interview that she didn't have any connections to any of this. I thought that was a load of BS, to be honest with you. But what I also thought was interesting, Brooke, after reading that article and reading more about your interactions with Sharon, it interested me because I rewatched that part of The Keepers during the cemetery dig and her questioning. And of course, her, her saying all about her great memory. And then all of a sudden, she does not recall and if there were pornographic photos, she would think that she would remember that. That all just seemed very weird to me. She seemed very forthcoming until you get to that point. Then all of a sudden, it's like she's pleading the Fifth Amendment. I do not recall. Yeah. And you can tell even just looking at the way she reacts to that question. And of course, we knew from what they released in the Keepers that the informant 
who was codenamed Deep Throat. Oh my gosh, Deep Throat. That's <laughs> yeah. the horriblest name. And the name came from... <laughs> Bernstein and... When Nixon died, yeah, Watergate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Abby nicknamed him that because refused to let us show his face, and he made us change, change his voice. Yeah. Uh, but I believe he talked about this a lot. I don't think he's hiding. Yeah. I have a legal question for both of you, which I don't understand. Sharon said that there were like 50 people who came to see her that reported first or secondhand knowledge of abuse and when they went in to her office deep throat told us that they came out crying because she discouraged them and said it would make them look like sluts and and hookers and that she couldn't prosecute unless everybody was convincing is that accurate or could she have prosecuted just based on each case separately she could have done each case separately yeah, I think that if you have 50 people saying, this person did this to me, that's very powerful. That doesn't make any sense to me. I feel personally, it's not her position to make anyone feel like, like they shouldn't be heard. What also got me was when Deep Throat was talking about how he saw pornographic photos when they were being pulled out of the hole. Correct. That's what he, he talked there. about. Exactly. Yep. And of course, when they asked Sharon May about that, she does not recall. What also oh. caught my ear was when Deep Throat, when you guys were all in the meeting with him and the keepers, he also talks about how he felt like they had more than enough information to arrest Maskell. But when they brought yeah. it to her, she would discredit it. And, of course, his opinion was that it was her stopping it. Like she had something that she was trying to stop for the Catholic Church mm-hmm. of Baltimore. Yeah, so it all is just messed up in my mind. I don't see how... You know, it's the prosecutor's job before they prosecute to make sure that they have enough evidence to win. So, like, sometimes prosecutor people are like, why isn't this person prosecuted? But it's because they don't have enough concrete evidence. Someone put the pressure on the police and the prosecutor's office that this person doesn't get arrested and this person doesn't get arrested because they're the people who are helping me. Then I think that could very well make Sharon may forget. Do you know what I mean? These sure. are very people who can kill a nun. Right. I think it's very possible mm-hmm. that it's a really higher up corruption and that pressure is getting put on the bottom branches or the roots of the mm-hmm. tree of command. Brooke, you said that okay. the Nichols case it was 92? 97. 97, okay. I thought you said 92, which would have been interesting timing because that was 94 was the dig was she still the assistant state's attorney yes okay and then i know a few years later she left like she went into private practice right i mean that those are all signs to me that if this entire branch that have the same leadership are purposely taking the attention away from these particular people then perhaps it's a corruption higher up What I like about you, Brooke, is what we were looking for is someone who can talk about if they felt Sharon ever in her career with the prosecuting office of Baltimore, if she ever did anything or if we have any type of proof that she did things that she wasn't supposed to. Sometimes prosecutors especially can develop this where they are very focused on their conviction rate 
I'm wondering if maybe she had this upper corruption that she followed along with so that her conviction rate would be very good. We have a systemic issue in the United States. And the issue is that police officers, detectives, law enforcement, they are judged on number of convictions, percent of arrests, not Mm -hmm. judged on if they arrest the right person or not. And that same with prosecutors. They are judged on a number of wins. And so when you have these two very important people in the groups of people in the justice system working together, and both of them, both parts are just trying to win. And if they can cut corners to do that, they're going to. And if it works, they're going to do it again and again, because that's what their livelihood is based on. That's what their performance is based on. That's how they get praised. And so we have a system that awards quantity over quality, and that is a serious systemic issue, and we can't have justice with that happening. And you can see that clearly with her writing these letters to the medical examiner and the first officer on the scene, which, so this is a few years after the Jane Roe and Jane Doe case. This tells us this is proof that Sharon May is sometimes willing to do things that's very shady and misleading. I think that Sharon May did do things that were shady and misleading. I think that she works for a system that encouraged that. Mm-hmm. And I also host the Cold Case Files podcast for a The podcast that is about Richard Nicholas and his story, it's called Convicted. And actual innocence, I interviewed like 100 people who were exonerated. They would all tell you that the prosecutors did the same thing as Sharon May. So we have a wide systemic issue. And yes, it was not okay for Sharon May to do that. But I think that were she in a system that judged quality, correct convictions over quantity, perhaps she wouldn't have gone down that path. And I feel that about a lot of prosecutors who have done that. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily a character flaw within Sharon May. But I think that the system problem. Was, it's a system problem. It's really hard to be that one person who goes against the system, especially if everybody else is not. And then you look at their conviction rate. And mm-hmm. Sharon, why is your conviction rate only 50%? Because mm-hmm. I was looking for justice. They don't care. Right. They want the numbers. Yeah, she becomes a whistleblower. Yeah, exactly. And, and she has to take care of herself. She has to leave town, which is looks like that's what's happened. I don't know. Brooke, let me ask you this. Knowing what you know about Sharon with you working the Richard Nichols case from 97 and you knowing the Brady violations that were in effect for that case, when you watched the keepers and you saw the interactions and the things that she said, would it surprise you at all that maybe that evidence disappeared and she didn't know anything about these photos? I think it is much more likely that she either received a directive or a threat from someone else to not do them. Or I think it's possible that they found them and didn't show her so she could have my ability. Interesting. We know that the guy that's buried this stuff, Mr. Story, he was the groundskeeper at the cemetery. When they, the stuff was being buried, there were several truckloads. And in between trips, he was at the cemetery. He looked at some of the stuff. And he kept some of it because it was pornography, and he blackmailed Maskell. And I'd really like to talk to the story kids. It's a large family. 
but I understand they're reticent to talk to us. Their dad was in a bad situation, and the whole family was being kicked out of the house on Christmas Eve because Joseph Maskell fired them. The man just couldn't win. He's living, but he's not thought we would be able to talk to him, but he has dementia, I believe. And the family is very tentative about talking to any of us, which I totally understand. Who would have been above her as far as a title? Title the state's attorney. But the state's, the state's attorney, attorney okay. then reports that I don't because I have so many notes. I had somewhere where I drew like the chain of command and with mm. like this person and this person and then branching off of that was law enforcement and the mm. attorney's office and they had one common if you imagine it like a tree like the powers that be were the trunks and the roots were law enforcement and the attorney's office so from what we know now we know that mr story says that there was pornographic images right deep throat who's an informant says that he saw pornographic photos. So is there anyone else who confirmed that we know of? Only that the survivors have talked about seeing Polaroid pictures of themselves in sexual acts when they were unconscious, that Maskell and or Magnus or whoever was in there took of them and used it to threaten them. So... Those women saw their pictures. Teresa Lancaster, who was Jane Rowe, her attorney, James Maggio, at the time said there was a whole box of materials just about her. The majority of people believe that it was there. I do know that Deep Throat told us that he saw enough to at least get Maskell on child pornography charges. And he and his partner went to Mass, where Maskell was supposed to be staying Mass at St. Augustine's, and a different priest came out. And when when Deep Throat went up to communion, instead of saying body of Christ, the the other priest says he just went out the back door. So the priest knew why they were there, and... Maskell must have known that they were coming, and he took off, and they went to his room. They had a a search warrant. They went to his room there at St. Augustine's. They didn't find anything. I do believe they found firearms, but no pornography or anything that they could have taken him in for, and I believe all his guns he had legally. They kept missing it by minutes. At that point, that's when he went to Ireland, correct? either to Ireland or to the place he went for healing or whatever. There was a place where it was the center for something. So he was either there or Ireland. He took off. He knew they were coming to get him. They could have taken him in on sonography. And before they were able to inventory all of those things and document it, that's when it all disappeared in a flood. I don't know because the, but it was Hurricane Isabella, which was not right after the dig. It was a while later. Like, I'm thinking maybe even 2002. And we heard that the evidence room was flooded. But the stuff had been in boxes and plastic bags under the ground for four years. So if it wasn't ruined that way, I would say it had been packaged well enough to withstand water again. 
especially the trash bags. So we don't know. We heard a rumor that it's possible it was moved to storage containers in Fort Meade, which are like truck bodies. We have no idea if that's true or not. I have someone who's working on trying to find that out and has filed a formal request to determine if those storage facilities have the evidence, but I don't know. And again, we don't know what the police know because they can't share anything with us. Why can't they share? Because it's still a cold case. They they may have the evidence. They can't, but they're not going to tell Gemma. Are you kidding? Here I am (laughs) telling what I know. They're not going to share information with anybody because let's say they shared something with me and I, that would mean I could be called on to testify that I knew about something before the case was solved and it could impact the outcome. So I understand that. Deep throat. Oh, yeah. He's retired. Now everybody knows it's a he. But he did tell us that there were many Baltimore City and County officers all over that cemetery watching from the trees, like without yeah. being noticed. Because the archdiocese was responsible for digging up the stuff, and they had their own backhoe loader or bulldozer. And he said when he got there, they were sitting in the wrong place. He could tell they had been digging, and there was nothing there. So he sent, he went and got Mr. Story. Story had been fired. So he went and got Mr. Story, who came and got on a bulldozer and dug it up, and there it was. So apparently the archdiocese was maybe intentionally digging in the wrong place to say there's nothing there. And of course, when Maskell had stories bury it, he said, go in and seed it, S-E-E-D, so it looks like nothing's been disturbed. And claims that it was because he didn't want to violate the the ban on open burning, although he's been committing felonies for 30 years up to that. Now he's worried about the ban on open bonding. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) If Sharon Bay is listening or anybody that knows her or is related to her, and I would even sit this one out so that she can talk to Shane and not have me hovering and just let her talk and have her say because we think the information from both of those sources is critical. The following letters are the actual two letters that Brooke uncovered from communication that Sharon May sent that we discussed in this podcast earlier. These are being read by my friend, Kate Walinga, from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. This first letter was written by May to the officer that broke protocol by removing a person that was clearly dead from a car, disturbing the crime scene. Dear Officer Hannah, thank you for everything that you did before, during, and after this trial. We really did appreciate your case preparation and your faithful attendance each day. Since this case was the first time that you ever testified in court, we thought that you might like to have a copy of your testimony for posterity. This way, your wife can see how well you did. Rumor has it that you were given a hard time about removing Asia's body from the car. The basic rule is that you should not disturb a crime scene. We think that the basic rule is a good one and should be followed. However, the reason that you did in this case is certainly understandable. 
We knew from the very first interview with you that you were overcome with concern the instant that you saw Asia. Your feelings were so markedly different from those of the defendant. We want you to know that although moving her was not standard procedure, it turned out to be the right thing to do. Had you left her in the car, we would never have won this case. It is only because you did move her that the medical examiner saw the fixed lividity on her left side and her back when the autopsy was done. This fact was the whole case. Lividity made everything Nicholas said a bold-faced lie. We learned from an unimpeachable source that the defense did not spot the significance of Dr. Shute's finding before we raised the issue in open court. We wish we had been flies on the wall of Cardin's office after court that day. Did the scream team scream? How is it possible to repay someone for caring, for being a decent human being? We do not know the answer to that. We just know that we owe you big time. Sincerely, Sharon A. H. May, Deputy State's Attorney and Roberta G. Siskind, Assistant State's Attorney. The following letter was written to Dr. Shute, thanking him for his misleading testimony at trial, which caused May to win the case. He testified falsely that lividity gave the time of death because it fixes at two hours, when in reality it will fix between 8 to 12 hours. But it can vary widely, which is why most of the forensic community says it is not an accurate indicator of estimating the time of death. Dear Dr. Shute, You probably heard that Richard Nicholas was convicted of first-degree murder and use of a handgun in a crime of violence. The jury was only out for two hours, which is a very short time, considering that the trial lasted for 14 days. We are 100% certain that your testimony was the reason that this jury had no difficulty reaching this verdict. You were just too marvelous. Were it not for courtroom rules and professional decorum restrictions, we could have hugged you right after you testified. The only thing that we could do was kick each other in absolute delight under the trial table. We certainly could not have asked for better. Of course, you realize that your stellar performance in this trial has now forced you to testify equally as well in all subsequent cases. The doctor shoot of the Nicholas matter is hard to follow. However, we know that you are up to it. Thank you. We are forever in your debt. Sincerely, Sharon A. H. May, Deputy State's Attorney and Roberta G. Siskind, Assistant State's Attorney.
Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.